This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. What do children of color think about America a year into Donald Trump's presidency? Their responses, say our special guest, paint a bleak picture for the country's future. Plus, outrage over a YouTube star's ill-advised video showing the body of a suicide victim has us thinking, what exactly are kids watching online? And a conservative political action group goes after a teacher's union in Michigan. Our local union representative says... Bring it on. Those stories, plus the first kids these days of 2018, you won't believe what the kids are into. I'm just telling you. On this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who, ready or not, are back for the new year. Holiday break is over. So let's introduce them down at the end of the table Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I'm Rebecca McIntosh. I teach students at the Alternative School. Sitting next to her, Luann Fox, what do you teach? Hi, I teach English at the high school level. And Ryan So, right next to me, what do you teach? I'm an elementary school speech-language pathologist. Ryan, Luann, Rebecca, thank you so much. They're all educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to our first topic in this first uh, new episode of 2018. We've invited in a guest to join our teachers for this first segment. His name is Connor Williams. He's a researcher at the New America Foundation focused on education policy and dual language learning. He's also a former first grade teacher in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn at a school in the Achievement First Charter School Network. And the reason we're having him on for this episode is he recently published a piece on the education news website, The 74, with the headline, Trump's America Through the Fearful But Still Hopeful Eyes of My Old Brooklyn Students and Friends. In this piece, Connor went back and talked to five students who attended that elementary school he used to teach at. They're all now older teenagers. He says that some of them graduated high school in 2017. Several of them are now in their first year of college. All five of them, he points out, are children of immigrants. A few of them are immigrants themselves. Some of them have parents who are undocumented. Three of them are Latino Americans. One is Nigerian American and one is Yemeni American. And he asks them all, a year into Donald Trump's presidency, how are you doing? How do you feel? Connor Williams joins No Wrong Answers now by phone from Washington, D.C. Connor, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really uh, grateful to be here. Uh, So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Our teachers want to ask you some questions as well about this piece that you wrote for the 74. Um, But let me start with this one. One line from your piece that really jumped out to me, I'll start with that. You write, quote, There's no sugarcoating it. The students that you talk to view the president and the country Uh, As bleak, most describe a process of steady disillusionment with the United States, often one that began before the 2016 election, end quote. What did these students tell you? I I went in expecting to hear Trump is a dramatic, terrible moment. We are afraid of what he means for us, for our families, for our communities. This is really something we, we didn't expect. And there was some of that, but mostly what they they told me was they they don't see Trump so much as a novelty. They see him more as a continuation of all of the worst things they already thought about the United States. From from one of the students uh, who actually from two of the students, their sisters uh, who have undocumented parents, and uh, their father had been 
has been deported under the Obama administration. They they spoke about a, a certain tension in their, uh, uh, frankly, certain, putting it too lightly, a, a deep tension in their views on on Barack Obama. As students of color, uh, they saw him as, as a real hero. And then they talked about this disillusionment as they also, they watched as he governed and they started tracking how he was governing on immigration issues and, and then eventually, you know, lost their father, uh, was, he was, he was uh, deported. It's not that that was a sort of singular betrayal. It was more they saw this start to, to realize that he was emblematic of a a triumph of American diversity and American pluralism, but also that that didn't mean that all was going to be okay, that we had graduated to post-racism in the United States. When you chose these students, um, what made you choose those particular students? I'm, I'm wondering, is it is it because of the Trump election in general, or his stance on immigration, or um, what was at work to make you choose those students to, to talk to? Since 1990, about, uh, we've, we've approximately doubled the number of uh, children with an immigrant parent in the United States. Uh, it's slightly more than double, I think, now. Since 1990, we've slightly decreased in the number of children, we're talking zero to eight years old here, the number of children who have exclusively native-born parents. Right, so this is an enormous growth part of our population, and lo and behold, that means we're going to have the virtually all of the growth uh, in our workforce in, in the next uh, handful of decades is also going to be uh, children of immigrants and immigrants themselves. So that, as a group, I wanted to talk to kids who were the present and the future of the United States about what they thought about this voting bloc. But then these kids in particular within the sort of children of immigrant zone, uh, I, I had stayed in touch with some of my former students' families after... Uh, I went back to graduate school. Uh, Carlos was, was one of the ones that I had been in the most touch with. And um, so I got in touch with his mother. And then as, as I was talking with her, it was early before I decided exactly what to write or whether to write uh, about this. She mentioned that he was on this debate team. And it occurred to me that then we weren't just dealing with children of immigrants who I had some connection to, but also children of immigrants who I had a connection to who were thinking and engaging actively on civic questions as a regular matter of their day. And so the, these kids were just perfect. Uh, they they are just perfect for talking about this kind of issue, these kinds of issues. They're all uh, deeply publicly minded. They're they're all very much engaged in these questions. Um, and I, you know, frankly, I can't wait for them to be more publicly involved in the debate we have around immigration and around pluralism in the United States. Rebecca, I see you have a question in your. As I read the article and then read it again and then read it again, one of the the paradoxes I found, uh, Connor, was how you talked about. These kids wanted so desperately to be respective, to be respected and retain their dignity in their in their immigrant identity, and yet they don't want to be defined by that identity and how that can be a burden. Uh, you talk about how as as uh, uh, as we work on the left, how we usually define those groups individually and hear their list of um, issues and opinions and grievances. And, and how, how that kind of both sides of the coin, wanting to, to r- retain that, that important identity and yet not be defined by that and marginalized by that. For sure. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it, uh, on the left, right, there's something of a, a civil war, a little it, not even a little, it, it's a, a core debate about whether or not we're going to be um, trying to speak to the public in the United States about the identities of class, gender, sexual orientation, immigrant status on the one hand, or whether we're going to be speaking in terms of the identity 
one big fundamental identity of class, right? And they, you could see that these, these students are tempted in both directions, actually. One of the fascinating bits, which didn't make it into the article uh, for a variety of reasons, was that in a conversation with them about the election, specifically about the election, they all sort of shrugged and said, yeah, we were, we were big Bernie supporters. We were big, uh, really into Bernie, and, uh, you know, kind of fine. Hillary Clinton seemed okay once it was time, but um, the reason that's interesting to me was that Bernie Sanders is emblematic of this effort to sublimate identity to just class on the left, right? So on the one hand, they were really interested in having in, in a, a political movement around um, talking in terms of a, a unified working class, all pushing back on corporate power. On the other hand, when you ask them about white liberals and what they can do to help or how uh, other mem- members of the left should, should work to promote justice and a, a fairer world, they instantly said, you can't get us, you, you, there's no way you can begin talking to us, about us, with us without acknowledging and engaging with this, this piece of identity. So if you're a, a strategic thinker on the left trying to figure out how do we appeal to the white working class on issues of, of, of money, on, on fiscal issues, financial issues, and bring in these diverse uh, children of immigrants who are living in, and frequently often in, in low-income households in urban centers like, like Brooklyn, you've got to do both those things at the same time without triggering, on the one hand, the concerns about diversity and pluralism from your white working class uh, audience, or your concerns about being marginalized and just lumped in with all of the white people um, and not taken seriously in terms of particular grievances from those folks coming from the more diverse urban areas. And I, I don't have the answer. Yeah, I know Ryan has a question, but just based on what you're talking about, it makes me think, um, what are, I think specifically, white teachers who teach children of color, how are they supposed to advocate for those students um, with some of the concerns and some of the challenges and, and competing um, competing goals that you're, you're talking about right here? You know, I am a former teacher and very reticent to advise folks currently in the classroom on that. You know, my PhD is in political science and my, my teaching experience is, is a decade old, so I'd be careful in yeah. taking it too seriously on that. Yeah. Ryan, you had a question. We're seeing this wave of activism amongst young people in this country, and so I was just curious to know if the students that you talk to are participating and engaging um, in other ways besides their debate team. Are they protesting in some of the resistance movements that are going on? Are they um, participating in outside organizations? Um, And I'd also like to know if you were able to speak to some of the parents of these students. Um, As a child of an immigrant, um, I know that my parent would, (laughs) it's kind of, my, my dad is kind of conservative, and so he would not want me to be protesting on the streets, but I know some parents are very encouraging of um, active protesting. So I was wondering if you were able to get uh, the parents' perspective also. Sure. Uh, As to the first question, I'd say uh, one or two of them have written publicly uh, about their experiences as children of immigrants in the United States uh, since the election and and, um, and more broadly. As to the second question, um, I did speak with one parent on the record, uh, but I'm going to speak obliquely about her experience just to sort of not, because, you know, I didn't include it in the article, and it's a bit distant from when we spoke. 
And what I would say is this. I would say that it was, it was stark for me to hear about how she talked about these children in general and her, her child in particular, the amount of work they put in and the expectations that she and their other parents have for them. That for them, success in the United States is something they can't expect. But what they, they do generally expect is if they keep their noses down or keep their heads down and noses to the grindstone, if they keep themselves on track and finish college, that the country ought to reward them with something like a, a stable middle-class life for that. But they see college as the only route to that. And they also acknowledge, they accept, expect that there's all kinds of dangers and distractions keeping them potentially getting them off track on that. So she worried about the ways that her particular child would be safe, would be able to get over the final hump. There were all kinds of financial concerns about whether or not her child was going to be able to go to college at all, whether or not this would imperil various other things, car payments, rent, uh, another child's effort to go to college. They were under enormous strain. And so at no point did they say, you know, I, I heard she say, I hope that they're not engaged, but she... She talked a lot about being afraid of, of how the margins for error were so slim for him. Dr. Williams, another paragraph that really resonated with me um, as I went through was the sentences you wrote about um, these kids feeling that they weren't part of the American community, that how dangerous it feels to them right now. And that's something that resonates with me in my classroom um, over the past year in a way that I, I really appreciated seeing in print. Um, and it, it just really struck home, um, and, and your early remark about being reticent to advise, uh, please don't be reticent, please advise. Um, I, me, and, and I think I speak for many colleagues, uh, would, can use all the help we can, we can get at this point. Well, I'd say first, thank you for your, your work still in the classroom. I, um, I miss it regularly, and, uh, I left after, um, the mugging outside my school and, and uh, you know, I, I, the, the, the psychological trauma of that kind of drove me out. I, I've been, I feel guilty about it every day. I'm just so grateful for, now as a parent myself, I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old. I'm just so grateful for their teachers and for those of you in the classroom. So first, thank you for, for that. Um, and second of all, um, yeah, I, I, one, another striking thing was when you talked to, when I talked to these kids, was hearing the degree to which they they ranged around in their the things that they connected to their fears and what i mean is you know the 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 parents or the the, the children who um had the undocumented parents who had you know one deported they spoke a lot about uh, you know uh, ice and about uh, immigration enforcement but they also talked about police brutality and they also talked about going off on debate trips up and down the eastern seaboard and, you know, meeting white kids and not knowing what to do. How do you interact with these kids? They're, you know, they've got Make America Great uh, paraphernalia on. And, and how, do you, how do you begin to parse through what a kid like that might be thinking wearing, wearing gear like that? They just don't, they don't know how to process it. And so that meant that their fears about all of the different ways that they could be at risk kind of blow up, right? It, it, it isn't necessarily the case that all um, all issues facing students of color have to be connected to Trump or immigration, but a lot of the times in our conversations, it started to seem that way because they, they were so anxious already that 
they couldn't help but see these as all of a piece. They were all, all of these different dangers hit them in the same emotional zone. Uh, and that it, it was, it's, it's just profoundly disheartening. Uh, again, remember, remembering that these are kids emblematic of the future of our workforce. This is, these are the rest of the country. This is what it's going to be like unless there's some dramatic spike in native-born American parents having lots of new kids. Children of immigrants are an enormous chunk of the future of the country. Uh, to wrap this up, Connor, uh, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, and we started with this, and we, we've reiterated just, you know, kind of how, how bleak at times these, these students look at, at America right now. But you do say in this article that they do have hopes, they do have dreams for their futures. What are they? So a couple of them talked about, and um, this, it is varies, but a couple of them talked about wanting to come back specifically to the communities that they're in or into communities like them. Um, and frankly, they, they spoke in, in very detailed terms. I want to go back and work with the communities of color, especially those I grew up around, and try to work for justice and more opportunities for folks in those communities, which, you know, as I noted in the article, was both the kind of thing you would say if you believed in the American dream and wanted to extend it to more people. But on the other hand, you know, you, you hear them speak throughout the rest of the interview saying, look, did there's no hope for me. I, I know that I'm up against these various anger, angry and anxious white people who, um, you know, who, who don't believe in me, who don't trust me, who think I'm a terrorist because of my religion or the, the color of my skin or the way that I dress. Uh, I know that I'm a risk for being uh, shot and killed by, by police officers because of all of these same things. And this country is just beyond saving some of their dreams, I, I put it in there too, is it, two of them in particular said, we just want to go to a place where there's no men and there are no white people. There's this mythical village um, of, of um, domestic violence survivors in Kenya where the women who sort of banded together to all live together in this area. And they, these two of these students who'd heard about it said that they just talked about it reverently. Like, this is a dream. No men, no white people. But I think it's incumbent upon all Americans, especially white Americans, to know that if you keep telling people they have no place here, you keep telling them that they don't belong, you keep telling them that they're not part of the United States or that they aren't trustworthy or that people who worship the way they do or sound the way they do don't, don't have a place in our community, you're, you're poisoning our future. You're not just doing damage to these kids now. You're setting them up to give up on us. They're giving up on one another. They're giving up on the, the broader country. And again, they don't, they're already afraid. They already don't know what to make of, of, of white Americans. I think it's time that I, I want to help them change. I want to help the broader immigrant community feel more welcome and choose that, that path of believing in the country that they're in now. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Maybe before recently you had never heard of Logan Paul, but if you follow the news, there's a good chance you know who he is now. Paul is a YouTube star, for lack of a better term. He has a massive following on social media, 15 million subscribers to his YouTube channel, 16 million followers on his Instagram account, and similarly, similarly huge number of followers on Facebook. He is a uniquely modern invention, a boy from suburban Cleveland who began posting videos of himself when he was 10 doing pranks and other 
10-year-old boy things and has built that into a personal brand empire. Adweek says Paul makes nearly $13 million a year from his various digital ventures. And while what Paul does may irk or confuse older people like us, we can't dismiss just how deeply popular he is among some younger people. There's this video of Paul visiting a mall in Dubai, and the rush of teenagers who recognize him literally shuts the mall down for a while as a growing scrum of screaming kids mob and surround him and his entourage. Well, why do we care? Well, Paul, as you may know, has become part of a bigger cultural conversation after he posted a video to his YouTube channel, again, that channel with 15 million subscribers. On the final day of 2017, he was documenting a trip he and some of his cohorts took to Japan, and they filmed a video in Japan's famed Aokigahara Forest. This is a forest near Mount Fuji that has become infamous as a place where people go to commit suicide. In some recent years, as many as 100 people have killed themselves inside this forest. So Paul and his team went there, we should say, um, dressed in uh, Pikachu hats and other attire, and they discovered what appeared to be a suicide victim's body hanging from a tree, and they shot a video of it, shot their reactions to it, and posted it. And it got more than one million views before outrage and criticism prompted Paul to take it down and issue an apology. He said he had meant it as a way to bring awareness to issues of suicide and suicide prevention. Quoting from his apology, he said, I didn't do it for the views. I get views. I did it because I thought I could make a positive ripple on the internet. Needless to say, criticism of Paul has been harsh. Everyone from professional psychiatrists to other celebrities have blasted him for not only being immature, but also irresponsible and downright dangerous. Um, the conversation that I want to have about this is, is not necessarily about issues of suicide that were raised with this particular issue. We've had conversations about suicide and, and will likely and unfortunately continue to have those conversations in the future. Um, that's a separate conversation. The conversation that I wanted to have was um, this idea of modern-day social media influencers, celebrities, and their impacts, especially on young people. Um, uh, these influencers, like Logan Paul, I think are uh, massively popular among the younger set, but among people our age and older, we have no idea who they are. And there's a, a whole level of influence that these people are having, um, for good or bad, it's your, it's your opinion, on, on younger people. But uh, what does that say um, about where our kids are at and, and how they spend their time and who they look up to? So I just wanted to ask, um, uh, Logan Paul or otherwise, who do your kids um, look up to and, and, and how do you think that affects who they are and, and the people they're becoming? While I can't name specific people, I know <laughs> YouTube is king amongst mm -hmm. elementary students. That Even from, as young as elementary school, I mean, they, they're, they're watching YouTube all the time. Yes, I, I talk with parents and they tell me that YouTube is their after school activity. They tell me that YouTube is what they're doing before they go to bed. So kids are constantly plugged into YouTube. And it's you know what they're watching like at that young of an age. What are they watching? From what I hear, they're <laughs> watching um, videos of video games and someone providing commentary over what what's going on in video games. I know there are also different prank videos that they watch. And there's kind videos. of I mean, how, how Logan Paul kind of started. I think it still does. I mean, he does, he does prank videos. Yeah, you know? yeah. I know that there there's just this breed of celebrity that's coming out of YouTube um, who are just continuing, you know, they're continually needing to, to produce content and to top themselves to keep their viewership. And, and kids are really, really engaged with YouTube. 
Yeah. Rebecca, you are nodding your head vigorously. No, Ryan's right about that. (laughs) I'm an elementary person myself, and that's what my crew does after school. It's it's this community. They go out into this community after school, and they talk about it. I went home, I got on YouTube, and they look up video games, and they look up shoes, and they look up TV shows, um, and they look up music, and this is their – how they explore things, and they find – uh, create content that's been created and and things that are put out commercially it drives the commercialism piece makes they, me crazy and i mean i know for for younger kids too because i mean i'm a new dad so he's my son is not watching youtube right now he's 16 months old and but we I, thank I, you I, for I worry that. about i worry about these kinds of things as he grows older <laughs> i mean there's there's a whole kind of community of of videos of 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 people unpacking boxes of people opening up candy of um, there's a there's a there's a young boy I think he's like maybe seven or eight years old who who gets who reviews toys and he has millions of followers. I guess what is the 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 impact on kids? All to say that I just think the impact. I've just been reflecting on this and it's just like I wish everything is just so immediate for them. They just they follow that which is immediate. They everything has to be now 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 now. And we wonder why our kids have like you know no attention span. And I was thinking about. You know, when I was younger, you know, we never had phrases like that's so yesterday or that's so last year or the last month or whatever. This is so now. And this is how our kids like judge almost everything. It is it's of the moment. So therefore, it's cool. And if it's not of the moment, that's so like, I don't know, last week. I mean, like to have that kind of a phrase. When I was a young kid. <laughs> I mean, I was, right. Somebody had to say it. It's just I mean, it's, but it's just. Yeah. Well, it's, it speaks, a, it speaks you know, to what Ryan was amazing. talking about earlier, where someone a personality like Logan Paul feels like he has to do something that captures attention that ups what he right Ryan said it great I mean it was yeah it was like to to produce more content I mean there's got to be I I can't even imagine living in that world and and profiting from that world where I have to produce produce and must top myself in whatever outrageousness um whatever do you see your kids in, in any way mimicking what they see on on YouTube, I mean, whether it be a prank video or whether it, you know it be the the makeup tutorial, like are they actually putting these things and ideas and actions into practice in their own lives? Personally, I've I've seen students who will uh, record. You know, their their young drivers. Some of them get into wrecks. They've recorded that. They've recorded and, getting into a well, wreck. Well, not like not like at the moment because they don't know they're doing that at the moment. But I mean, like it, you know, in the seconds afterwards. I mean, you know, the, to have a video of like what happened. I mean, that's they that happened. Yes, absolutely. I've that's an elementary thing as well. That doesn't have to be just big kids. But they're not. That's, but they don't drive cars. It, not the not the right <laughs> part. But just the broadcasting of. Of events, just yeah. the mm-hmm. the capability, the, show of their the lives. capability <laughs> oh, to say, yeah, "Here's well my said. cat." I mean, uh, my, here's my cat. You know, <laughs> this is this is my new toy. This is my brother falling off his hoverboard. Whatever it is, the broadcasting, the the ability to put their experience out to others, and then receive feedback or give feedback. Is that a good thing? Could be good. Yeah, could be good. Sounds, I see in that. In theory, it sounds good. I see that. <laughs> it could be tremendously frightening as well. Um, but to have, you know, I have fifth graders who have Facebook pages and Instagram pages and they Snapchat and they put their life out there can be, yes, very frightening, I think. And that's an old person reaction. Mm-hmm. I recognize that. It, it's still scary to me. When I was a kid. Yeah, I was probably <laughs> feeling old. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, an interesting conversation. We'll, uh, we'll wrap that one up. But if you have not seen um, a makeup tutorial... Or 
a video of a Kinder Candy being unpacked or a video of a video game being played. Um, don't necessarily feel like you need to rush to YouTube to see those, but uh, <laughs> if you're a teacher, you might want to just check them out just to see what your kids are watching. <laughs> uh, well, our last topic involves an interesting story we read about out of Michigan recently that involves a teacher's union and an apparently politically motivated sting operation. The conservative undercover group Project Veritas has won a legal case against the American Federation of Teachers, Michigan. A federal judge has ruled the AFT Michigan cannot stop publication of documents the union says were obtained illegally by an operative of Project Veritas who was posing as an intern for the union. The union argued that the operative, who had applied for and been granted an internship under a false name, obtained what the union described as confidential and proprietary information like databases, information about conferences, and also reports about grievances that had been filed. The union, in essence, tried to argue that the information amounted to trade secrets, an argument the judge rejected. However, the judge did say that the woman who posed as an intern could likely be found in breach of duty if the case were appealed. The union has said they are going to appeal. Project Veritas is, of course, the group founded by conservative provocateur James O'Keefe. They're known for this kind of thing, using hidden cameras, selectively edited undercover videos and fake identities to try and bust groups and institutions they perceive to be too liberal. You've likely at least heard of Project Veritas's work recently when the group failed, spectacularly, I might add, at roping the Washington Post into showing bias by trying to plant a false story about former Alabama Senator Roy Moore. A woman came to Post reporters with wild claims about an alleged sexual relationship with Moore that were totally fabricated, and that operation was stymied when the reporters blew holes in her story and actually secretly videotaped their confrontation with the woman where her story quickly crumbled. The founder of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, paints these types of projects as a kind of gonzo-style investigative journalism, but typically they're just disingenuous attempts at proving a political point. On their website, Project Veritas claims to have uncovered drug use among teachers in the New Jersey Education Association and a child abuse cover-up in Wichita. It's unclear what Project Veritas intended or intends to use with the documents culled from the AFT Michigan. There's nothing about that particular operation posted currently on their website. But safe to say that the issues brought up in this story uh, maybe should change how local unions operate and are changing how local unions operate. And we wanted to talk about this because one of the teachers at our table is uh, very heavily involved in her local union and in the state union in Missouri, Rebecca. And I, I do actually have come to understand that you yourself have had run-ins with Project Veritas and James O'Keefe. I want to hear what, what we, your experiences are. We at Missouri NEA and at the National Education Association are very familiar with Mr. O'Keefe and his organization. Um, just in full disclosure, I do serve on the board for the National Education Association, so I'm a, a proud union thug, and I <laughs> am a staunch supporter of the work that they do on behalf of students and teachers in education, and, and that's a, another conversation. But we learned many years ago that um, as we as teachers needed to have influence in public debate, we need to be able to advocate for students, we need to be able to um, defend democratic institutions like public education, um, that we would beco then become targets. And uh, Project Veritas has made a lot of effort to come after a lot of different associations around the country. Um, and so we as a group uh, do our best to train our members and our leaders to be aware of that. We, we, are, we receive training and um, try to communicate with each other to know when 
Uh, Mr. O'Keefe is going to be at our, our gatherings. We have a, a national assembly every year in the summer. Um, he regularly comes. He brings people undercover. They do uh, hidden cameras in their purses. They try to catch people in bars after air hours. They uh, so they'll, they'll just they, like approach someone. They'll if approach like, if people at the hotel bar. They or approach something. people with provocative questions and try mm. to engage and, and escalate conversations. Like what do they ask? You? Um, um, one of the things we do at, at this particular meeting is is we we set policy. We discuss new business for the association, and those topics can be um, provocative and incendiary and controversial. And so they'll want to engage on the abortion debate, or they'll want to engage on institutional racism and and brown children and black children. And they want to talk about you know um, why do we protect bad teachers and and they they just they throw that incendiary. Uh, you know, gauntlet down and then whatever they get the response. And these are activist leaders. These are people who are engaged and hyped up and they often get a good response. But um, we've trained each other and we've learned we need to know who we're talking about. We have to look at media credentials to be sure they're legitimate. We have to know who's in the room when we're talking. We have to know who is receiving our materials and if things are being taken out of context. And that's just good business in in this current political climate and and we've we've been doing that for years and years uh, does this i mean why why target a teachers union um i, I think you know a, a lot of people would say you know unions are on the way out um what 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 is the purpose of a of an of a organization like this coming after a teachers union because people trust teachers people in the larger community trust teachers and Teachers' unions, for better or worse, are perceived as um, powerful, and they are. Uh, depend and they look different in in fifty different states. You will have a different profile for fifty different teachers' unions, and we have several here in the state of Missouri, and each one looks very different. But overall, they are perceived as important groups of people, and that can be either threatening or supportive depending on where you are on the political spectrum. Are unions more or less powerful than, than people and, and critics like James O'Keefe give them credit for? I think they are exactly that powerful. And I think, again, it can look different in different places. Um, but I think if, the, if they are perceived as powerful, then we are obligated to use that yeah. power responsibly and on behalf of our students and public education. And if we are perceived as less than powerful, then we are obligated to get better at what we're doing mm -hmm. so that we can do that same work. Well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, you guys just got back into school a few days ago. First days of the new year. Luann in 2018. So far, what are your kids into? You might be surprised at my saying this, but um, my students like to talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin? Yeah, wow. and I literally what? am trying to learn a lot more about it myself, but and what it, do they might, say it about may be about my population. Oh, God, the, what they've 
how they're getting it, how how to get it, explaining what it is to each other. And you know, each they know each one costs like twelve thousand dollars. I right know, now. and then they and they and they they've made these projections. They know, like you know, the the kids who are really rabid followers of Bitcoin and the development of that know know how much it's increased and just um, they they dream of uh, you know uh, having um, occupations where they're paid in Bitcoin all the time. And I just it's it's just somewhat so new to me to learn on the side that I just I'm listening to it with half of an ear and trying to actually like do my job on the other so um, it's just interesting but it's on their minds a lot that is fascinating Bitcoin Ryan what are your kids into well my wife and I were at the movies and it just so happens that our local basketball team was in the same theater as we were and so we were sitting there waiting for the movie to start and all of a sudden the the team different groups within the team started chanting this call and response in the theater thing in the theater um, dilly dilly is what they would say and then in response another group of kids would say dilly dilly back and i was so confused i had no idea what they were talking about and this happened until up until the movie started and so i went home and googled what dilly dilly was and it turns out that a beer company has a new slogan, Dilly Dilly. They have this Renaissance ad campaign yes. where Dilly Dilly is like some phrase of approval. And so Dilly Dilly is now in my consciousness and I'm hearing it all the time. If you watch a lot of sports on TV, like some people at the table do, <laughs> you will have seen that commercial yeah. quite a lot. <laughs> I like that Ryan just keeps saying it. Dilly Dilly. <laughs> nice. Uh, Rebecca, what are your kids into? Several of my kids came back from the holiday break with new shoes. It's always a traditional kind of elementary thing, and Ryan's nodding. I bet he knows what I'm going to say. New shoes now light up, and they make noise. No, no. And why, why a child needs blinking disco feet with noise in my ADHD world? It just escapes you, doesn't it? It just escapes me. So they... Is there any way so, to turn the sound off? The, yes, you can turn it off. I, yes, and you yes, can turn the should. lights off and you can have different patterns of light and sound. And we've learned a lot about them just so that I know that that can happen. But the very first day back, everybody took their shoes off in my room because I hadn't learned that yet. <laughs> oh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox, Rebecca McIntosh, and Ryan So. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, it's the first of the year. Make those New Year's resolutions and be nice to your teachers. Music.